We finally have had some snow at home. Yes. Have you enjoyed it, Sarah? I have. I actually have. And Zoe had uh, therapy. Uh-huh. And so she had therapy and I got the boys in all of their snow stuff and they got to play in the snow while Zoe did therapy. Mm-hmm. And it was really fun because that was kind of Peter's first time playing mm-hmm. in the snow. He was not a fan to begin with, but he caught on. So Sounds it was okay. typical. Well, I've really enjoyed it that we finally have some wintry weather rather right. than just cold. But yeah. we can talk about more of that in just a second. Welcome to the Pretty Happy Podcast. My name is Sam. And I'm Sarah, and we're the parents of Zoe, a child with Brett syndrome. Yeah, it's been a super dry winter for yeah. us. Uh, rather warm, unseasonably yeah. warm. Yeah. Which, I mean, I don't mind warmth. I would just rather have a good snowpack so that way everything doesn't burn come fall. <laughs> right. Is that too much to ask? Well, and I like, I mean, summer, well, I wouldn't say summer. Spring and fall are my favorite seasons because it's not too hot, but it's not cold. Um, but I like how winter comes in and breaks it up. But we haven't really had that. So it's been kind of weird. Yeah. No, very, very odd, especially considering the fact that Last winter was super wet. Yeah. Compared to the year before, which it really wasn't that much. Well, no, but it's way more than this year. Way more. Yeah. Most of the time, uh, the snow, we've had, what, three snowstorms? Yeah. And like it's only stuck around for like mm, three days. Well, the first one didn't even stick around that long. No, it didn't. No, it didn't at all. So, yeah, it's a little... Just weird. Yeah, like I said, kind of frightening too, considering the when you think about yeah, of... when you think about all the things that, all the problems <laughs> that are gonna happen <laughs> because there hasn't been snow, uh, and because all of that snow hasn't melted into, uh, bodies of water. Uh huh. Yeah, those are gonna be problems. They're super super dry, but let's not talk about that. We don't need to discuss climate and weather and everything anymore. We've got more important things to deal with. (laughs) Like a very important recognition day that's happening at the end of this month, February. Sarah, do you know what it is? Yes. Because we talked about it before now. Oh my gosh. I I was setting you up. To tell you or to be surprised? No, to say it. Oh, guess what, guys? (laughs) It's Rare Disease Day. Oh my gosh, we need to practice. I didn't a know bit if more. you wanted me to be like shocked and be like, oh my goodness, I have no idea. I mean, I guess. I didn't, I didn't know. <laughs> I was just expecting you to commit to something. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure which direction to go, so here's what you got. It's fine. It's fine. But uh, yeah, Rare Disease Day. For 2022 is happening on February 28th of this year, obviously, 2022. And Rare Disease Day is a great opportunity for 
friends, family, caregivers, friends, advocates, anybody who's connected to somebody with a rare disease to bring awareness regarding it. Now, Rare Disease Day is actually a nonprofit organization, and they began 14 years ago uh, doing this global initiative, essentially. And their whole mission and role is to bring awareness to individuals who have rare diseases and disorders that most people don't know about. We've already talked a number of times on this podcast how it is very impressive that people know so much about many other diseases and disorders and conditions uh, because of advocacy and awareness. But those have that awareness has come about not only to do with some great PR teams and marketing teams, but because of the number of people yep. who either have them, suffer from them, whatever you want to call it, uh, be it breast cancer, Down syndrome, autism. People are fairly aware of what those are, but there are plenty of conditions and disorders out there in the world that there's a handful of people that have it. There's maybe a thousand or two that have it. I mean, the last number that I saw for um, Rett syndrome, I think it was 250,000 worldwide, which when you think of seven, eight billion people, that's not much. It's not much, but oh my goodness, that is much more (laughs) than some people that I know. Uh, In fact, I have two people that I grew up with, their children, separate instances, instances, that's the word. Yes, instances. Thank you. Uh, one of them, their, uh, son is one of 200 in the world. And the other one, uh, their daughter is one of 19. Wow. In the world. Yeah. And so, uh, obviously I'm not saying this to be like, oh, thank goodness we're not in that situation because I've had a chance to talk with them since, Sarah and Zoe and I all received the Rett syndrome diagnosis and I've been able to chat with them and just commiserate on the difficulties of being a parent of a child with special needs. So the main reason that I was wanting to talk about this is number one, to let everybody know that there's another opportunity for us where we can bring awareness to rare diseases. And while according to the Rare Disease Day organization, Rett Syndrome does not fall under that because their threshold is 1 in 2,000 births uh, and Rett Syndrome is 1 in 10,000 births. It is still fairly rare and I think we could all do with a little bit... Not us. Other people. (laughs) (laughs) Could do with a little more... Just awareness, being being told, hey, there's there's stuff happening out in the world, and it may not be happening to you, but it's it's impacting others. And because we are certainly experiencing a small share of that, 
Uh, we can we can do our part to bring awareness. And so the great thing about it is if you go to rarediseaseday.org, at the very bottom of their website, uh, it has a whole section for you to be able to download graphics for social media, to be able to post and let people know about Rare Disease Day and the importance of being aware of individuals who have rare diseases. Yeah. Um, and something else that is really, really cool that we found is um, they're actually celebrating this year because in uh, December of 2021, the UN adopted its first ever resolution on addressing the challenges of persons living with a rare disease and their families. So the UN has made, I don't know the correct words for a UN resolution, but they've made a resolution. They've made a promise that they're going to work on. They have resolved. They have resolved (laughs) (laughs) to to do specific things in order to help individuals and their families who have rare diseases, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cool. Um, and everything that uh, we read on that resolution, it wasn't specific to that one in 2,000 births. No. Uh, rare diseases. That is something that the Rare Disease Day Foundation organization, I'm not sure if they're a foundation or organization. Anyways, that, that group has set their own threshold yeah. to be able to help a specific group of people. And so this resolution, while it was pushed forward by this group, uh, Rett syndrome will most certainly benefit from it as well. Those afflicted families who are working through it will hopefully be able to receive some support from it. Well, and one of, um, so they have, let's see, five points, five key points things that they are asking in the UN resolution. Um, The first one is inclusion and participation in society of persons living with a rare disease and their families. The second is ensure universal and equitable access to quality health services without financial hardship. That is a huge one. Huge. Um, promote, uh, Promote national strategies and actions. Integrate rare diseases into UN policies, programs, and priorities, and publish regular UN reports to monitor progress in the implementation of the resolution. So those are huge because what they're trying to do is they're trying to make solid commitments. They're trying to make nations have solid commitments to individuals with rare diseases and their families which is more than what people have historically done, right? Um, and I think, I think this is a really good first step because I think part of the problem with, with society and individuals who have rare conditions is that people don't even realize when they're being ableists. So they don't realists. Ableists. What did I say? Ableists? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they don't people don't realize when they're being ableists. 
And I think it's just because they're they're ignorant. Like, so for example, Zoe can walk, right? But just because she can walk, that doesn't mean she can do like curbs or stairs. But an individual who doesn't know Zoe would think, oh, she can walk. And you automatically just make the assumption, well, that means she can probably, she can run, she can do stairs, she can, you know, all of that stuff, but she can't. Mm -hmm. Well, it's stuff we're working on, but she can't. She can't do it right now. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's the first step to changing the mindset. I think it's one of the first steps to changing the mindset, to getting it into laws so that it becomes a permanent fixture. I can see that. Because, I mean, there's countless videos out there of people not being understanding of yeah. other individual situations. Uh, I mean, one thought that I had, we today we were listening to some music and I, I personally enjoy a lot of classical music. And Zoe was taking a liking to it and she was really excited about it. And one of the thoughts that passed through my head was, you know, I would love to take her to a concert. But what was immediately in tow? The thought of, I can't. Because she's going to vocalize mm -hmm. and she's going to be very thrilled and excited about it. And everybody's going to be like, oh my gosh. Why can't they control their child? Yeah. Why would they bring a child to this? Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, she's five years old now, right now, but let's say we're talking 10 to 15 years old, somewhere in there. Yeah. And I'm sure she's going to have some of the same personality that she has right now. I know for certain that people would be having those conversations and they'd be having those thoughts. And of course, like, whatever, you know, it's, it's still hard, it's, though. It is. You try and let it roll off your back, but it still gets you. It will. It will. And, and I mean, I think, obviously, we haven't even gone into this situation yet, so it's all conjecture. <laughs> it's all a hypothetical of whether or not, first off, Zoe will even be interested in attending an event like that when she comes of age uh, to be able to do it. But uh, I, I, I think that... I'm in a strong enough position mentally and emotionally where I'll just be like, whatever, you know, screw them. They are not kind people. I would not want to associate with them and they can continue on their own path and we're going to continue on ours. Yeah. But I know that there are plenty of people out there who are in a similar situation with a child with a disorder, condition, disease. And for whatever reason, they don't have that thick skin. Every one of us is different. So that's fine. Yeah. And I would hate for that parent, that caregiver, that advocate to have somebody say that and then they have to carry it with them. That caregiver, the parent, yeah. whoever, they have to carry that with them from the event. So instead of being a fun thing that you're taking that individual to, it becomes a... Well, should I have done that? Yeah. Yeah. You begin to put the blame on yourself. You can begin to put the blame on yourself yeah. when you did absolutely nothing wrong. The, the example that comes to my mind is a video that 
that was going around the internet many, many years ago of this guy who is, I think he was a paraplegic, but he was in a, in a motorized adventure wheelchair. So something that would allow him to go onto hiking trails, biking trails, stuff like that. And he literally comes up around this corner and he sees this man and this woman who are standing beside their bikes. They're getting hydrated. And the man in the wheelchair makes a comment to him saying, hey, nice run back there. You know, complimenting him. Good job. And this man standing adjacent to his bike, his first reaction was, dude, you can't have that up here. He's like, what do you mean? I can't have what? He's like, you can't have an electric bike up here. And the guy's like, I, excuse me? What are you, I'm disabled. I can't walk. And the guy shakes his head and he's like, that's the rules of the trail, man. And he walks off. And then um, this gentleman in the wheelchair, he had the strength to speak up and say, I can't walk, man. What am I supposed to do? Of course I have an exception in this. And the woman said, well, you should have led with the fact that you're disabled. That's what she said. Now, the guy, it was like, it was really annoying that he was confronting this dude about yeah, like his electric wheelchair, which I'm sorry, it was very obvious that it was a, an electric wheelchair. I, I had a first person view. So the guy had a GoPro on his head and I knew it was a wheelchair. It was very obvious because of the way that it's built. Yeah. And Sarah, you and I are not around wheelchairs a lot. No, we're not. We we don't have any reason to be around wheelchairs a lot. So for me to be able to recognize that. Yeah. Come on. How is it that they couldn't do that? But what I was going to say was the part that was so infuriating to me is the woman's response. Was because it, you was should saying, have led with that. Yeah. And my thought <laughs> when I was when I was watching this, uh, first off, my jaw hit the floor when I first saw it. I was just like, "You gotta be kidding me!" These people have the audacity. Like, who knows what the this gentleman's situation is? Who knows how he got in, into a situation like that where he can't use his legs anymore? Yeah. And to then tell him, "You need to lead with that." That is your identifier. Oh, man. It was so mm. infuriating. And so I think you're right. Letting people know that that are not around individuals who are non-physical typical, you know, or non-neurotypical or whatever it may be. Non-whatever typical. Helping them understand that it's okay. It's fine. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Yeah. It's going to be a little bit different, but you're dealing with it for five minutes to an hour and a half, two hours. Yeah. These people are living with it. You can be polite. You can be kind and you can be understanding for that short amount of time. <laughs> And, and then you can walk away and, you know, whatever after that. So I really hope that this resolution does not only help families to be able to receive the, the support that they need for 
receiving medical care and so on and so forth, but also to bring awareness. So yeah. if you're interested in sharing some more information, go to rarediseaseday.org. We'll leave a link in the show notes of this episode. Welcome back, everybody, and we are very excited to have on the show today a special guest who is coming to us from the northwest of the United States, Courtney Odell. We are so grateful to have Courtney coming on the show today. Courtney is actually an occupational therapist, and she has worked in the past with uh, children who have Rett syndrome, and so we're excited to talk with her generally about occupational therapy, yep. but specifically what she has seen as far as how occupational therapy can benefit uh, individuals with Rett syndrome. Uh, and uh, maybe some things that we as parents are missing that we can do to help uh, our children out. So Courtney, thank you so much for coming on the show. We're happy to have you. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, why don't we first begin uh, by uh, finding out who you are. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh, why did you get into occupational therapy? What was the draw for that? And uh, what have been some of your highlights of, of your career so far? Uh, yeah, so I, um, I haven't even heard of OT, um, but I was involved in a um, church club and helping kiddos participate in a, a group game together. And there was a child who, um, wasn't able to participate. He had a walker. Um, he had a lot of things going on in his body. Um, and I just remember being really upset by that. And so, um, I just, I picked him up and I played the games and, and helped him as best as I could. And it probably could have, could have been a different way to help now that I know more, but at the time <laughs> it just really planted the seed of, um, wanting to include everyone to the degree they want to be included. Um, and so I ended up getting a degree in psychology, which generally is a launching point to another degree. I had thought I was going into clinical psychology, um, and then I just really wanted something more hands-on. Um, so I ended up um, finding occupational therapy through a couple different opportunities of observing and um, a random lecture note I took in my undergrad and I looked more into it and fell in love. Wow. That's um, awesome. The, I, I especially like uh, your origin story. Can I call it that? Sure. Why not? <laughs> this is Courtney's origin story. Make, make it epic. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I, I, I think what's really great about it is, you know, yeah, you look back on it and you're like, oh, okay, I could have done things, these things different. But the, the fact that you just wanted to help the individual, we had the opportunity to take Zoe to a special um, soccer camp at the yeah. local university. And 19, 19 year old guys who were, who were helping her out, two of them who 
they had no experience with, no. with really anybody who had any sort of disability. And they were just willing. They were just willing to yeah. make it a good experience for Zoe. And for us as parents, that meant so much. They were so kind and they were so patient. It was adorable. It was. <laughs> it was, it was. adorable because <laughs> they were like... We told them that she communicates with her eyes. And so uh -huh. if they ask her yes, no questions, she'll look at them for yes and she'll look away for no. And so we, I was watching and they would like, they'd get down on their knees and they'd, they'd grab both her hands and they'd stand right in front of her and they'd ask her the question, you know, whatever the question was. And then they'd wait and like, you could just see them like, okay. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. <laughs> you know, like it was, it was adorable. I don't want to miss it. I yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh exactly. yeah. But, but yeah. the fact that, I mean, it, it, there was, it, the interaction wasn't perfect by any stretch no, of the imagination. No, but the, the fact that they were willing to do anything really meant a lot to us as parents yeah. and absolutely to Zoe as well. She had a lot of fun the entire time that she was there. And so I, I'm sure that that individual also really appreciated the effort, you know, yeah. it just trying, I think is what, what needs to happen a little bit more, a little more communication and trying with individuals what? with multiple disabilities to find out. I hey, think that what sometimes can we do to make it a good experience for you. I think that sometimes people don't help because they think they're going to do it wrong. That's true. Instead of just trying, you know, like I, I think that sometimes you're just like, well, what if I, what if it doesn't work or what if I do it wrong or, you know, and so you don't do anything. So I yeah. think, I mean, yeah. I think it's great that you just jumped in. And we're like, Hey, let's try this. Let's do it. <laughs> You know, I mean, we, we got some smiles out of it. So that's always <laughs> the win. Exactly. Exactly. So long as uh, at the end, everybody's smiling. That's all that really matters. Yeah. That's really, really great. Well, so you, you ended up going into occupational therapy. And what was that experience like uh, getting your certification uh, in occupational yeah. therapy? Yeah, so I have a master's degree. It's transitioning to a doctorate degree. Um, and so you end up taking a lot of a lot of courses, anatomy, neurology, um, physical disabilities, um, pediatrics, and and um it's it's a really exciting time where you're given a lot of information and I, I joke now as I've had different students I've mentored and things that that the goal of your OT degree is not to know everything but to someday when you get a referral with a diagnosis you at least know to where to start looking um, yeah. because the reality is it's it's a field that is very broad and is really hard to explain. And then when you think about interacting with humans, humanity is broad. So there's a lot of ways to use and develop and do occupational therapy. Um, and so it's it's fun because it's a, a very creative field. Um, and and you just never know exactly what, what type of people you're gonna end up working with. Um, even within a same setting, you'll end up dealing with different diagnoses or, or different family makeups or different goals that they might have. Um, so it's certainly never dull. <laughs> a lot of moving parts, it sounds like. There's, there's definitely never going to be a one-size-fits-all, which that in turn may be difficult for somebody considering looking into that field. Uh, if they're looking for a much more structured 
You know, I take this uh, off of the shelf in this location and I plug it in over here and things happen. It sounds like that's not the way it works. Yeah, sometimes it can be, I, I would imagine it could be daunting. Um, they tell you when you're in occupational therapy school, they tell you you have to come up with a two-minute elevator stump speech to explain who you are and what you're doing because people are like, well, are you a job coach? Or you come in the room and you say what you're doing and then they tell everyone, well, the doctor came in or the teacher came in or the physical therapist came in. And, it, and it's not that we don't appreciate people in those fields, but that's not our expertise. And mm -hmm. so it, it's a little more unknown um, in the general populace. And can we hear your speech? <laughs> I, I mean, it. You can you can hear today's version. It okay. A <laughs> um, yeah, I I'm really good at not keeping it one specific way, but oh, I'll give it good. a shot. Okay. So, um, so I really see occupational therapy at its root is um, helping people do what's important to them. Oh, I like so, that. so it can involve anything as simple as sitting up or dressing or taking a bite or something um, more complex like cognitive factors and memory and sequencing through things. It can be as physical as strengthening and um, supporting uh, generally your upper body, but your whole body. Um, sometimes that involves using equipment or not. Um, it can also be as creative um, and um, can involve elements of um, writing and planning and meal prep. And so, so it's a very diverse field, but at its core, it's connecting meaning and function for people. So sometimes that's creating new meaning and function or building skills they don't have. Sometimes it's returning that meaning and function. Um, or sometimes it's protecting what you have in the hopes that you can build more or return more. I love it. I think that's a fantastic explanation. Because I'm not going to lie, when we, when we first started doing occupational therapy with Zoe, I had no idea... I was like, what? Like, I, I didn't understand the purpose. Not because I didn't think it was important, because I knew it was important. I just, in my brain, was like, what is the definition of this? Like, why? Because for me, like, physical therapy, there's a very specific, like, connection. Physical yeah. therapy is a physical yeah. act of doing something. And then speech well, therapy is talking and swallowing and you know, all of that. Yeah. And I, I think it's also especially tricky at times in the pediatric realm because there, there's a lot of overlap. And so there's sometimes when you see a physical therapist and you see an occupational therapist and you're like, well, you're sequencing through the same rolling activity. And it's, mm -hmm. it's a little hard sometimes to see the nuances at you know, sometimes they might be looking more at the quality of the movement and we might be looking more at what are you moving for? Um, and, and so it, it can be trickier, even that, that feeding piece, sometimes a speech mm -hmm. therapist does it, sometimes an OT does it, sometimes they split up different parts. So it's, it's not surprising that it's a confusing field for families to interact with because 
you know, it's not something that you can say, this 10 word sentence is what describes my feel. <laughs> yeah. That makes but sense. I, I love that you say that it's, it's helping the individual get what to what's important to them. Like that's the, that's the key. And I have to remember that when we do our, when we set goals for Zoe is that they're, you know, they're asking me, okay, what, because there's a ton of stuff that we would love to work on, right? Mm-hmm. But really, it's narrowing down, okay, what is the most important thing for her to be working on right now? And yeah. and it's just like you said, sometimes it's, you know, we want her to learn new skills or relearn skills or just maintain, like, where she's at. We don't, uh, don't want her to regress on skills either. So it can be really... That can be a, that can be hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. Is occupational therapy kind of a new field then? Yeah, it sounds like what you're saying because a lot of people don't know about it. It's just not. I, I don't know. Yeah, you, you tell me. So, so it's actually it's been around since 1917. Um, occupational therapy was rooted in um, soldiers coming back from World War One, um, and in some aspects of helping them work through PTSD and trauma, um, they started really this, this field of crafts, craftsmanship. Um, and so, you know, they were, they were building things and lacing things and figuring out how to get back to, to doing things again. So it didn't necessarily look as medical or developmental at the time, but it was about, getting back to more function. Um, and then you're, you're, you're testing me here because it's been a while. <laughs> my foundations of OT class. Um, but, but I think it really was in the 80s and into the 90s that OT started finding its way into, um, into the schools um, and, and then that, that kind of early support or early intervention or some of those models of um, supporting children and families, um, those were kind of coming up more in that time where they were realizing for various reasons um, individuals needed support. So it, it, the full scope of OT, I think, changed as the full scope of supporting people with special needs changed. And we got IDEA mm-hmm. and some of those things. But the field itself has been around um, since 1917. Okay. And, really and, that, cool. and that kind of makes sense, too. I recently saw a video on social media where uh, it, was, it was a colorization of a video from the 1910s, 1920s. And it was a, a World War I veteran where all the the individual did was show a, a hat a military hat of some sorts i don't know who it was or whatnot but the individual he was showing it to it lost all control of his body and i've i've known about shell shock now known as ptsd for many many years i hadn't understood to the extent that it would cause damage to one's normative living until I Mm -hmm. saw that. And Mm -hmm. so it makes sense that, that OT, while it 
was not called that in 1917 did start to come about at that time because we were beginning to label what these soldiers were coming home with as mm-hmm. sh- shell shock. As far as I know, there really wasn't much of a discussion after the Civil War regarding the state, the mental state of, mm-hmm. of veterans. And so that it, to me, it totally makes sense that, that that would become part of the conversation because as a society, as you mentioned, now we are much more aware of it. But as a society back then, we were beginning to acknowledge that things can happen to individuals that will uh, traumatize them mentally. And yes. it's not a get over it sort of thing. We need to help them process it. And sometimes that processing may be this occupational therapy where we're getting them mm-hmm. to do these basic tasks that for whatever reason they have lost the ability to do. So cool. Yeah. Tangent. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fine. And, and it, it fits with like so, some of the stuff I studied pre-OT because I, I thought I was going into a, a trauma Oh yeah. Um, care. And that, okay. that, that birth of an understanding and awareness of trauma, like you said, was around the same time. And so uh, it's almost like we started realizing that connection between lived experience and what's going on in your body can sometimes be really strong um, and, and have different implications for what yeah. you can do. Um, yeah. I mean, very similar to how, how um, in in the past 100 years 150 years as medicine traditional medicine was was growing and and learning uh doctors quickly realized that operating on somebody while they were smoking a cigarette <laughs> and <laughs> not wearing a gown and not wearing gloves and not wearing a mask not wearing eye protection not wearing uh, the proper gear may cause problems not only to the patient, but also to yourself. Um, right, uh, so, right. Yeah, yeah it, it completely makes sense uh, in all of that. So, okay, well, very nice, very nice. Uh, I do have one more question. Why is it called occupational? What, where does that yeah, come from? Yeah, so um, it's it's really rooted in that, that functional um, piece of it. So doing your occupations doing Mm -hmm. your jobs. So, and, and this is where it gets confusing for people Mm -hmm. because they're like, well, are you a job coach or cause, or occupational health? That's when I get hurt on the job, Yeah, Uh, you know, and, but it's looking at job, not as in what you get paid for, but job as in what do you do? So what Mm -hmm. are your routines, your habits, your roles? Um, In the, in the pediatric world, one of your jobs is play. Um, so it's looking at that job or occupation at a very um, basic level is that root of occupational therapy. Gotcha. It, it sounds to me it's it's about the what people are doing and doing can be vast and broad and it changes um, as an individual grows, um, mm-hmm. not only physically, but also mentally. So, okay, that... That makes sense that, uh, yeah. I mean, really, we don't need to go any further of that. That's all I needed to know tonight. So. <laughs> I'm just Got kidding. The big, the big question answered. Yes, there, there we go. That was, that was the only reason why people turned, tuned in for this, of course. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, so um, d- tell us a little bit about your experience working with individuals who have Rett syndrome and what has that experience been like for you? 
Yeah. Um, well, I know um, when we first interacted, I was like, just so you know, I'm not an expert. Um, <laughs> and and it, it's really true. But I have um, I have had the opportunity to partner with a couple of families who who have um, experienced this Rett syndrome diagnosis and condition. Um, my first experience was when I was a student. Um, so within the therapy realms, um, as you're learning your uh, career, you get the opportunity to do these fieldwork internships where you get to step into the job with guidance for a couple of months. So I um, was a student in a school system and I worked with um, a kiddo who had Rett syndrome. Um, and that experience um, opened my eyes to some of the things you don't necessarily think about um, on the surface. Um, so it wasn't just about, you know, what can the child do to participate in their school day, but can she even come to school that day? Because if someone else is sick in the class or, you know, just, just a lot, a lot of um, the respiratory factors, a lot of the family coordination factors, the fatigue and endurance factors. Um, and so it was a really interesting lens for me um, to see that, that dynamic of, of school-based practice and um, things that you can work on in that, but also some of the limitations of that, because um, you know, in 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 the school setting, you're supposed to work on things that relate to the school day, um, and but also by the same token, um, you know, it was really cool. Like they had an eye tracking device within the classroom, and so many great setups for this kiddo for when she was able to be there. So it can be a really wonderful opportunity to get, um, to get equipment and to um, really access the education you should be able to have. Um, so that's where uh, my experience started. Um, and then after I graduated, I was hired to work in a um, clinic setting that was attached to a hospital. So like 98% of what I did was outpatient and then 2% was inpatient. Um, and so with that, I ended up working with one family in particular um, and, and a couple other families um, who, um, some of them we didn't know at the time when I was working with them that that was the diagnosis that was coming. Um, and then I've also worked with some kiddos who um, have MECP2 duplication, which is not the same, um, but has some similar um, characteristics and, and sometimes a similar aspect of the journey for families. Um, so I, I think it was really wonderful to have that experience as a student because um, not, every, not every pediatric OT um, has heard of Rhett. Even now, I'm currently working in an early support, or some some states call it early intervention, 
um, area and I was talking with a colleague in passing and I said yeah you know something and I it was really hard to say goodbye to some of the families before I moved and there was one family in particular their child has read and my colleague was like what what is that <laughs> can you remind me um, so so for me, it, it just was one of those blessings that I got exposed to it in a situation where I had mentorship. So then later, when I had the ability to interact with families, um, I had at least a glimpse of some of the factors we would maybe need to consider um, within our journey together as therapist. And I, I don't like therapist and kiddo. I, I never know, like patient, client. I don't know. I I call I call a lot of them friends personally. Like that's just I was, was going to say goes. little pals, but friends yeah. probably a, a, a appropriate tale. Yeah, why not? Yeah. Now, See, my my brain goes to client. <laughs> so, that's where mine my so jumps sanitized. to. I know, I know it is, but that's where my brain jumps to. Well, and I I think for some people you know, they have a, a particular reason for, for one way. And, and so I go to a friend, but for some people, if I call them friend, they're like, well, you, we're not friends. You haven't earned that. Oh, or, you know, like, yeah, you are right. So. Yeah. There definitely are people very protective about that uh, friend uh, title. So yeah, that, that true. you could run into that. Uh, now, obviously huge asterisks on, on this next question, because it, as you've already mentioned, Every individual's experience, regardless of having similar diagnoses or ailments or trauma or whatever it may be, um, it's still going to be a very unique experience. That being mm -hmm. said, what were some of the things that you saw with these individuals who had Rett syndrome that you were able to do to help them um, maintain some of those skills or maybe gain something back that they had lost during regression? What were some of the successes that you saw in working with these individuals? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think, I think from the, the therapist lens, um, I can definitely say working with those type of kiddos is different because you know, we have this mindset, especially in if you're working in the medical realm or there, there's this whole funding insurance continuum of are they making mm -hmm. progress, uh -huh. right? Yep. And so, so normally progress is defined by, you know, they can do it eight out of 10 times or, you know, whatever measurable bit that you have. Um, and so... Uh, you, you know, to be, to be quite frank, like the first goals I wrote for a patient who had Rett syndrome were totally inappropriate. Uh, cause I wrote them in that, that style that I normally do. Um, and, and so for me, it was a really good learning and growing experience on how to, how to see progress and how to preserve skills um, in a way that isn't traditionally measurable. Um, and so a lot of where we would end up going is, is tweaking some of what we normally do. So um, for example, um, 
you know, as an OT, a lot of times we work with kiddos who are on the autism spectrum and we have sensory processing and, and we're doing different movements or different tactile activities or um, different ways to feel body awareness. And for them, it's looking at um, trying to help them either calm down or be more alert or be more regulated within their body. Um, and so sometimes I take these sensory strategies and these sensory ideas that, you know, it's not like the, the kiddos I was working with with Rhett, it's not that they were dis, dysregulated and they needed to swing to calm down. But sometimes if we'd start on a swing, it would give them a more fun way and maybe a more dynamic way to stretch and relax their bodies. Um, and so I, I think I'm, I'm trying to, to anchor this back in your original question. And uh, I, I think some of the things that were most helpful for families was looking at things I was doing for other kids and doing them for different reasons with the rec kids. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I think that so makes some, total sense. Yes. Yeah. So some Go ahead. tangible, a tangible example, um, you know, there's this, it's a really funny formal uh, word, the Wilbarger brushing protocol in OT. And so you use it um, for tactile desensitization for kiddos who have a really hard time with touching things or textures or wearing clothes and you do this brushing protocol and, and there's certain ways to do it and it, it, it really does help them uh, in a lot of cases. Um, so I would take sometimes a sensory brush and not use the formal, so using the same tool, not using the same protocol and using it um, to calm some of the non-purposeful hand movements or the writhing or really give proprioceptive input from trunk out to the ends of your your hands and, and some body organization for that. Um, sometimes even something as silly as shaving cream um, because it gives you a little more glide in what you're moving and so it could help with reaching or it could help you um, have more access to doing line strokes when holding a marker is hard or things like that. So you're still getting those learning opportunities, um, those developmental opportunities, but you might be using a different tool. That, that makes a lot of sense to take something that you're already doing, look at ways that, that it can be repurposed for something else for somebody. It, 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 the more, the more we're talking to you, the more that I'm hearing that essentially what OT is for you is a giant puzzle piece and all the pieces are invisible. <laughs> and in fact, the pieces, the pieces don't even have like curves or, or arches or cuts that only fit together one way. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a million different ways to be able to put it together and sounds incredibly difficult. Maybe so. <laughs> well... And I think some of that is some of the way I operate. You know, there are there are some OTs who they specialize um, with certain populations or they gotcha. specialize with certain populations in certain stages. So maybe they're your inpatient OT. So they're going to be working on getting you to edge of bed sitting or, or 
or you know holding those utensils um and and I I I do have to add the caveat of a lot of the families I interacted with over uh over my time in the clinic especially those with the long-term diagnoses um, and genetic diagnoses. So some with RET, some with um, other very rare conditions. Um, these families would come to this point where they just <laughs> stepped into superhero land. I, I don't know it, how to describe it other than that, where they said, you know, this is where we are and this is what we're dealing with. And so we're going to figure it out. And so sometimes OT looks like, how do I adapt your toys? Do I, do I give it a switch? Um, do I get order certain equipment? Do I do different things? And, and I didn't have to do as much problem solving of that with families because the families were already doing it. They would come in and say, look at this cool fork I got from Target. And it has <laughs> this feature that's a little bit wider of the handle. And, you know, it's, but it's also still light enough that my kiddo can pick it up. And, or, you know, I, I interacted with my other friend who, their kid has autism and they had this really cool mouth tool and we've been using that because it's nice and light and it helps prevent, you know, the teeth grinding. And, and so some of what OT can look like for families um, who are, uh, you know, maybe starting out or, or becoming aware of some of the physical considerations you have to make, um, the families were already doing like they didn't need the OT support in that because they had already figured it out. Um, yeah. Zizi, that's where your that's where your community support comes in and is amazing. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You hit that point where you're like, okay, I've, I'm I'm going to jump into the community support and see what everybody else is doing and mm -hmm. get ideas from there and. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, one of the things that Sarah and I have found in our very short time in the Red Syndrome community is that there are a lot of parents, a lot of families that are very proactive in going out and gathering information. Uh, yeah. Not that we don't trust the professionals that we're bringing into our homes or that we're taking our children to. It's just that uh, we like to be in control. That's what it seems like. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Mine is happens. partly trust. because <laughs> Well, because most of the therapists that we interact with were the first RET family that, that, is true. that they've ever, ever interacted with. And so they just, it's it's not that, like, I trust them to be safe with my child. Right. I, I just don't necessarily trust that they know how to help her. Like. Because it's yeah. so different. Yeah. And as they, you've yeah. already mentioned, Courtney, yeah. taking uh, 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 tools and tricks of the trade that, that you're using in other situations and finding success and looking at them from a different vantage point to yes. be able to apply mm -hmm. them in mm -hmm. a new situation it doesn't necessarily have to be RET. Uh, it could be any number of things. All that being said, where would you recommend for families to go and find additional information to support uh, their occupational therapists in letting them know, here are some other ideas and thoughts and, and uh, what some other professionals are doing that uh, they're finding success in doing these things. Where would you recommend they go for that? Yeah, that is a really good question. I think 
in in my experience with Brett families, um, most of the family you're you're connected with one of the the clinics. What you know, whether it's in Denver, whether it's in San Diego, or you know, wherever you're going, you're seeking out the care of who's the best person for my child within you know, a four or five state proximity sometimes is, yeah. is, is what you're dealing with. And, and so the cool thing about that is that's where you're going to get a very comprehensive look at your child. And I'm sure it's an extremely overwhelming couple of days it is. When, you're, when you're going in and they're like, okay, we're whisking you from this appointment to this appointment to this appointment. And, and then you get the documentation and, and it's not always perfect. I, I remember I had a I, I had one chart that I received a copy of where something had been clearly copied and pasted from someone else because I was like, oh, your child has a new name now, huh? <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not always perfect, but it's at least, you know, from an OT perspective, I can at least look at it and say, yeah, we are, we are on the same page or, oh my gosh, I didn't even think of trying it that specific way. Um, but I, I, if I could say, and it's a little bit different than the question you asked me in terms of literature or support or that kind of thing, I would say the thing that helped me the most as an occupational therapist who worked with kiddos with RET is a family telling me how to read their child's cues. Because you're with your kid all the time. And you know, you know that their eyes shifted to the right and what that means. And, true. <laughs> and that can open up so many doors for understanding and awareness, even as, you know, because because we're not we're we don't get to get a script for, for um, oh, this is what you do, right? You know, it's mm -hmm. not the same as, say, you know, oh, you tore your plantar fascia. Here are the physical therapy protocol for how to help heal this muscle tear. You know, um, what, what you get is a condition name and some possible things, and we have to check over time, and your journey is going to be a little different. And so... That means you 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 have lucked into or been cursed into, depending on the day, um, an organic process. And so being able to learn how to communicate with a child with RET and what they are telling you is hugely powerful as you're then trying to help them do more. Um, I, I think as a clinician, I almost, and it, it might not be the answer you were looking for, um, I almost learned more from the families I was working with than from any certain body of literature into how to help their child. Um, I, I do know that In, as, as I'm thinking back through um, my experience with the one family who I had the longest journey with, and, and you know them, and I, I talked with them, I was like, is it okay if I share some of, some of what we did together? And they're like, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I had started seeing her before she got her diagnosis. So then she got the diagnosis and mom comes in and says, it's Rhett. And then he adds the 22-page genetics report. <laughs> and I, I have to tell you, as, as someone in the medical field, genetics reports are the hardest things to read ever. <laughs> like, They're terrible. Like I, I, I was like scribbling and highlighting and, and, and because it's, it is important and it is data and, but, but I was drawn to a field of function. And so I'm Mm -hmm. like, but functionally, what does that mean? And, Uh um, and I didn't necessarily get that from it. Um, and so, um, I did find as a therapist, I'm, I'm trying to think of what areas I Googled the most, because if you Google just generically, you get the, you may need some equipment, you may need certain things. And, and, and so as we were working through this, you got this diagnosis, I'm having to change the scope and focus of the goals I've written and, and what I thought this partnership would look like um, between us textbooks weren't helpful. <laughs> um, there, are, there aren't a lot of journal articles uh, within the OT realm in pediatrics in general. And so, so I think it really did look like what aspects of this can I pull from the other bodies, like I mentioned before. So, you know, oh, if, if your child who has RET has seizures, seizures, excuse me, what is what can I look at? What therapy um, magazines and articles and websites say about dealing with seizure disorder, and what from that applies to this situation? Or your kiddo is having some mobility or tone difficulty. So what can I pull from some other neurological things? And and so it really is breaking down what can Brett look like. What does RET look like in in your child right now? Because that will change over time. And what does the body of literature tell me on these things? Um, And all of that, it it you know, it's a process that happens over time, and that's why I I label it organic, um, because you're gonna come up with more answers as you try things, and that's where that piece. For me, the most powerful piece was just learning how to know the child um, because that's your that's your cue and your key for, oh, this thing we tried worked. Oh, this thing we tried did not work. Oh, this thing we tried maybe could work, but we won't have any idea because your child is still a child who has a big personality who says, <laughs> I don't want to try. <laughs> yep. And that's where we are. Um so very long explanation, and I don't know if I actually answered your question, but those are some of my thoughts about how it all intersected for me at the time. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the final question that I've got is uh, there may be somebody listening right now that their ears have perked up and they are interested in this field and interested in what you have shared. What would you recommend to somebody who is considering looking at going into occupational therapy and what does a typical um, 
educational uh, journey look like for somebody to uh, become certified in this field? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. Um, so there's, there's two different ways to, to tap into what we know of as occupational therapy. So there are occupational therapists, there are occupational therapy assistants. Um, so your occupational therapists are your ones who are going to be doing evaluations, um, doing, creating treatment plans, um, Sometimes, some it's very facility dependent on if they're going to see your more complex kiddos or not, because some of it just depends on who you have working and, and what their experience is. Occupational therapy assistants um, can do treatments as well. They don't do the evaluation piece. Um, and so with that, again, it, it's very facility dependent on what those specific roles look like. The, the OT assistants, um, that's, a I believe, a 20 to 22-month associate's degree. So some people maybe who have a bachelor's degree in something, they'll go back and get an associate's after. Some people go straight into it. Some people, um, uh, actually, many of the OT assistants who I've interacted with um, were in the military. And then after they got out of the military, um, they went into it because it was, well, it's a degree where I can get a certification, but it's not adding another four years plus more after I've already done this military experience. Um, so, so that's OT assistance. Occupational therapists, um, it is, there are a few master's programs left. Most of them, as they are rolling into their new phase of accreditation, it's a doctoral program. Um, and so with with that and it, it's a it's a long master so so i don't know uh master's programs very, very significantly so you know so, like say masters in engineering could look at like anything from uh 30 to 45 credits uh occupational therapy my master's was i think 170 credits um so nope. it's it, it nope <laughs> No, not for me. It, not it might, for me. you know, I think it might, it might have been more in the 130 range. I'm still, it, I stand by my statement, Courtney. Yeah, not yeah. for me. <laughs> so, so it, it's, it's a, a thing that you really have to get to this point where you say, I'm going to devote myself to school for a mm. time. Um, I think there was only one person in my program who was able to work while they were in OT school. Um, but you get through two and a half, three years, four years, depending on if your program is semesters or trimesters or, and then you take this giant test and then you get to do something you love every day. So there's that. Um, and then in terms of just exposure to it, it's a little tricky right now in COVID. Um, but one of the things that is really cool about the way the OT application process is set up. Um, you do a centralized application through OTCAS, O-T-C-A-S, OT Centralized Application System. It's, oh, it's nice then. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that's simple about OT. <laughs> 
And, but, but with that, you have to say that you have done observation hours. So I would recommend doing something I didn't do. I only, I only observed OT in pediatrics prior to um, starting school. And you end up having some adult rotations in school. And that was fine for me because I love people. But I, I recommend just trying to get experience. Uh, so you can ask to observe in the schools. You can ask to observe in a clinic. You can ask to observe in early support. You can ask to observe in skilled nursing facilities. You can ask to observe in hospitals. And, you know, just depending on what people are able to do right now, I, I don't know what it exactly looks like, but you have to do 30 to 45 hours of observation. Um, and then degrees that most people in my cro program were coming from, from undergrad were things like a, a psychology degree, maybe an exercise science degree, something along those lines, either um, in the medical realm or not, because you have to take, you know, a couple biologies and anatomies and, um, certain things like that as a prerequisite. Gotcha. So those gotcha. those are the the big big breakdowns in the field, um, and at least how the application process was a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have to get into the specifics of that, uh, but yeah. we appreciate you sharing all of this information with us, Courtney. This has been a very wonderful conversation, very enlightening. I learned a lot. I learned a lot. <laughs> Most important thing I learned was why is it called occupational therapy? <laughs> I am very satisfied to have come away <laughs> well, with a satisfactory answer. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And <laughs> thanks for dealing with all of my long answers. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, we, we greatly appreciate it. And uh, we, uh, we wish you the best uh, in your new home up there in the Northwest. And uh, we hope that this has been very enlightening for anybody listening about what OT can mean for you, your family, and your child with Rett syndrome. A big thanks once again to Courtney for coming on and sharing with us all the fun things that she's experienced with occupational therapy. Yes. A lot of really good stuff came out of it. Uh, it was a really enjoyable conversation. And maybe somebody is like, ooh, OT. Yeah. That sounds interesting. I want to clarify something. Uh-oh. I said that I don't trust them. And and that's not entirely true. Don't trust who? Therapists. I said that I don't trust therapists. And it's it's not that I don't trust them. It's that... That I don't you trust that. No, you Is trust the, yet verify. What? Trust and verify. Yes, but I wanted to add that I actually sometimes really like when therapists have no idea about Rett syndrome because that means they're coming in without any preconceived notions that may or may not be right. Mm -hmm. And And I like what Courtney was saying about using different techniques that carry over from other disabilities or conditions mm -hmm. because as somebody as a parent of of an individual with Rett syndrome I go straight to the Rett community and say okay what are the Rett things that you do 
to help with this? Or what is, what is the thing that you do to help with this? Mm-hmm. Right. And so sometimes I feel like we as ret parents have blinders on and we're only looking at the ret specific things mm-hmm. where therapists coming in who don't necessarily know anything about Rett syndrome, they have to look at the things that they know, right? And so they pull from other things, and so their ideas may be more out of the box but still work. So what if they, I, I what do if appreciate in my the therapist. Box? Well, that's good too. So out of the box or in the box, and Sarah's okay with it. <laughs> yeah. So basically, just be a good therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Well, it's time for Can't Leave It. (laughs) Sarah, what can you not leave? Okay. I I think you can't leave therapists alone. You're being mean. I'm not being... I'm I'm teasing. I'm not being mean. Just remember, therapist, when you come for her, I stood up for you. (laughs) I stood beside you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't kill me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Can't leave it. What episode is this? Like. I don't know. <laughs> 30 something? I guess. Is it 30 something? What does it matter? <laughs> well, 30, it'll be like 31. Oh my gosh. Like <laughs> okay. What does it matter? It matters <laughs> because at the beginning of this podcast, Somewhere in the beginning, the first couple of episodes, uh, one of my can't leave it's was that I was learning to play the piano. Oh, yeah. That was uh, really great. How's your piano learning going? Um, well, it's been, it's been basically non-existent. I, I did, I was, I was learning for a little bit. Do you remember that? I was like practicing. We had the piano downstairs. Yes, I remember. And I, I practiced for like almost a month straight. No, it was longer than that. It was? Mm-hmm. Oh, that makes me feel better. Yeah. Um, I thought I was being generous with a month. <laughs> no, no, it was a month. It was, it was okay, it was a couple of months that I was actually like, I was, and I was doing pretty good with it, I felt like, for, you know, a parent of three children to find time to sit down and learn how to play the piano. Um... And then I don't know what happened, but uh, I stopped. <laughs> and now I'm pretty sure I've lost everything that I had. So, so what, what's your can't leave it? My can't leave it is that I'm I'm leaving the piano alone. <laughs> <laughs> hey, guys. Remember when I told you I had a goal? <laughs> I gave up on it. I did. More than a year ago. <laughs> I did. <laughs> It's been a while. <laughs> um, but I've realized I have lots of things that I want to try. And I don't know. Priorities. I like I, I like trying the things that uh, give me results faster <laughs> than learning how to play piano. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Good things come to those that wait. So I know. Long. Well, the piano's waiting for me. So I'm the good thing that's going to come to it at some time. Not soon, but sometime. I guess. I guess. <laughs> anyway. All right. All right. What is your can't leave it? Uh, so my can't leave it is that a trailer 
came out recently, very recently, for Amazon Prime News, their new series, Rings of Power. Oh, that's right. Yes. So it's been it's been a, a little bit. It's been a little bit since there was uh, some good Lord of the Rings content. And Amazon is now this year, I think it's September. They're going to be releasing. They're going to be releasing a series. It's five they already have five planned out obviously like not super specific on the five but five i feel like the movie industry is like all the people that watched lord of the rings star wars and harry potter nope that group of people we're gonna hit them again with all of the all of the stuff nope because you've got like disney plus and and no. The Mandalorian no, no, and Boba yeah, Fett on, coming out. On. And then... Hold on. Hold on. No. Yeah. And that takes care of the Star Wars. And then Harry Potter. Oh we just had gosh. that like 20th... What is it? 20th reunion? Was that what it was? The Harry Potter one? Yeah. It was something like that. I don't know. Anyway, they had their like reunion thing. And now you've got Lord of the Rings coming out. Like, I feel like they're like, oh, this generation, no, they love these it. things. They'll you come don't back. Get it. You don't get it. No, like, these are different stories. Oh, well, I'm not they're saying they're the same stories, ex- but they're in the same. The universe. Uh, that's what I'm saying. They're expanding the universe. Granted, the, the stories that they're telling in this Amazon Prime series are stories that are already there. Well, isn't that the same with everything else that's been coming out? Really? So, with all the Star Wars stuff, they had books. For it all? Where are those books, Sarah? I don't know. I thought they had like comic books or something. Well, yes, they do have comic books, but no, the, none of the series, movies, or anything like that were based off of comic books. I clearly don't care. Yeah, well, you should. I haven't done Because my I care. I care. Therefore, well, see, but the things you care about, you, you tell me about. So, therefore, care. you must not care that much because yeah. you haven't told me about it. Or maybe that's why you haven't told me about the comics because they don't exist. <laughs> You've hijacked it. I don't even. I don't even want to say anything. Else about oh, it. I don't even want to say anything else no. about it because you hijacked the conversation. I'm sorry. So all I'm gonna say is that it's going to be amazing, and I'm not <laughs> going to watch it with you. Oh. I am going to watch it by myself uh, whenever I want. And, uh, well, I have to wait until September <laughs> because it doesn't come out until Which then, means you're so. going to forget about this conversation by then and we'll watch it together. No, I <laughs> absolutely am never going to forget about this conversation. <laughs> and with that, thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts so that you're notified when we publish episodes, which is every other Monday morning. And please leave us a rating. Leave us a message or a question on the Anchor app and you can become part of the show. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Pretty Happy Pod, where we share episode clips, news and updates, and photos of our adorable daughter. If you would like to be interviewed on our show, reach out to us on any of our social media accounts or you can send us an email at prettyhappypod at gmail.com. For more information about Rett Syndrome, visit rettsyndrome.org.